From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Lawmakers returned to the state capitol this week facing everything from the ongoing challenges of COVID to tax refunds due to Tabor. And while Democrats remain in control for a third year, Republicans have their own plan to make sure their voices are heard. The Speaker of the House and the House Minority Leader join me to sort out priorities. Plus, we talk with reality TV star Colton Underwood about his new Netflix series, Coming Out Colton, largely filmed in Colorado. It is my life. I think sometimes people forget that, too, Um, you know, including myself at times. Then he's been called Colorado's most important artist, an abstract impressionist known for colorful paintings of complex shapes and intricate patterns. We remember Clark Rickard. When I heard that Clark had passed, I thought he would go on forever because he was always painting. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Haffel. The Colorado State Legislature gavels in for its 73rd General Assembly beginning tomorrow. Democrats will hold the majority once again in both the House and Senate, but as has been the case in each of those years, Republicans are planning to make sure their voices are heard. That includes introducing a legislative package they say is the largest in modern state history. Here to discuss those dynamics, as well as the priorities for each party this session, are leadership from the House. Alec Garnett is the speaker. He's a Democrat from Denver. Hi, Alec. Thanks so much for having me on. Hugh McKean is the House Minority Leader. He's a Republican from Loveland. Hi, Hugh. Good morning, Nathan. Thank you. Let's begin with what's on everyone's mind. Unfortunately, uh, COVID has been the case for the last couple of years that you've had to deal with. As we said, the session is slated to begin in person on Wednesday. Is that subject to change because of the virus? And what alternative plans have been discussed in the event that you can't convene at the Capitol or if a number of representatives have to quarantine? Speaker Garnett? Thanks, Nathan. Um, Yeah, obviously, this uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 and the pandemic have been really hard uh, on Colorado families and on Colorado businesses and schools in particular, as we look to going back and doing the important work of uh, uh, of the people of Colorado, we're going to lean in on the experiences that we've had over the last two years. This isn't our first uh, session facing uh, the virus. We're going to uh, lean in on the safety protocols that we've really built out over the last couple of years, remote participation for legislators, remote participation and for testimony from the public and uh, making sure that we're all safe in the building. Obviously with the Omicron variant, uh, things are changing dyna- uh, quickly. And so if we have to uh, pivot uh, into um, a recess or into something that's more safe, we can do that. Uh, but at the moment, with especially with our remote participation, I think that we're able to kick off the session and get to work on the important business of uh, the state of Colorado. Representative McKean, uh, are these protocols something that both sides have agreed on? No, I would say that we've agreed that we ought to start in the same way we left last year, 
which is that we were conscious of making sure that we keep our staff safe and and the public and our members. But, you know, really, I give the advice to my members because we are seeing differences in the Omicron variant than we've seen in others, that that one of the big things hopefully we've all learned from from this pandemic is that if you feel sick, stay home. If you don't feel well, stay home and make sure that that we don't, you know, go through a process of of the legislature is convening, I have to be there and therefore, you know, make decisions that that would not be good for the for the betterment of everybody else. And and truly I think the speaker and I've talked about just everything should be as normal as possible and, and we we make the adaptations that we need to, but then we keep an eye on whether or not we need to continue doing those things. And and to me that's that's the biggest thing. People need to be able to come and talk to their government. And this is the, these hundred and twenty days are really when people have the most impact on coming to talk to their government, and we need to make that as possible as possible. Uh, speaking of COVID, in recent weeks, Governor Jared Polis has made a number of comments, both locally and nationally, on the pandemic. Here he is speaking with CPR's Ryan Warner on his decision not to reinstitute a mask mandate as he did at the start of the pandemic. I just want to point out, it's just about a year since the first doses of vaccine arrived in Colorado. You see the arrival of the vaccine as the end of mask mandates statewide. That's your position. Well, we see it as the end of the, the medical emergency, frankly. People who want to be protected are. Those who get sick, it's almost entirely their own darn fault. And they absolutely had every chance to get vaccinated, right? Uh, we're not talking about, oh, you know, there's a month to get vaccinated and then people aren't wearing masks anymore. I mean, we're talking, as you indicated, a year since the vaccines came. Everybody's had the chance to get vaccinated. And at this point, I think it's almost like they made a deliberate decision not to get vaccinated. Also, in an appearance in NBC's Meet the Press, the governor said, quote, people just don't react well to this ongoing environment of fear for two years, unquote. Sentiments like that have been cast as part of what's being called a new normal or endemic approach to the pandemic. Representative McKean, what do you think of what Governor Polis is saying? I really think that this gets down to the basic level of personal responsibility. We've there, there comes a point where we've done everything we can to make sure that people have access to a vaccine. And and some people have gotten COVID and, and obviously developed a natural immunity to this. And of course, vaccines are to help get to that, that level of herd immunity. But but truly there's there's a point at which we, we have to we have to sort of internalize the move from the pandemic phase of this to the endemic phase, where it is a part of our lives. It is a a virus that becomes a part of the normal um, progression that we all have seen, uh, influenza A and B. We've seen other things like RSV and, and other viruses that, that travel through our communities. And so we, we really have to move toward that endemic phase and be clear about when it is and, and then how we respond to it. Do we respond to it? And, and likely Pfizer is certainly um, pushing toward this, which is create these, these types of of boosters and vaccines for the various variants, just like we do with with influenza A and B every year, trying to figure out which ones those are going to be. And so that's kind of where we have to move. And I, I think that in many ways, the governor's looking toward that end of what does it look like as we just incorporate this into our everyday lives. Representative Garnett, do you agree with the governor's approach? You know, I think uh, Coloradans really owe Governor Polis um, a debt of gratitude for the leadership that he's shown through this pandemic. 
you know, no one ran for office in 2018 uh, thinking that they were going to spend their first term really trying to guide the state uh, and the state's economy through um, a once in a hundred year pandemic. And so I think he's done a really remarkable job. He's communicated clearly with voters uh, and with people across the state about where we are and, and where he sees us going. Um, I am concerned with the spike right now, but uh, what I'm watching very closely is uh, the hospital capacity. You know, my heart uh, goes out to our frontline workers. If there's any nurses, uh, doctors, um, uh, emergency uh, responders listening, thank you so much for everything you guys are doing on, on the front lines to, uh, to help Coloradans who are, are feeling sick and who are contracting COVID. I think it's important that we watch that capacity because that's really where um, uh, the decisions of some not to get vaccinated and to allow the virus to really hit them the hardest and go into the hospital is going to start having uh, negative impacts on uh, other people who need medical care. And we don't want to get to that point where we're at a surge capacity or we're over capacity. And so we're watching that really closely. I think that uh, Coloradans and Americans are going to have to continue to move forward. And we'll see a lot more, I think, when um, the Omicron spike goes down, which if we look at the South African model or the London model could be in the next week or two, what is the next phase of this? Are we getting closer to herd immunity? Are we, um, is there another variant that comes up? I think at the moment and looking at hospital capacity, um, we are in a place where uh, we're going to learn a lot more. Um, but I really do support the governor in the leadership that he has shown managing uh, this pandemic, which he certainly uh, didn't see coming and didn't sign up for. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the actual legislative session. Uh, as we mentioned before, on Wednesday, GOP leaders are planning to release what they call the Republican Commitment to Colorado, with more than 40 bills being introduced as part of a broad legislative package. Representative McKeon, you're scheduled to appear at a news conference on this. Can you give us just a brief taste of some of the major initiatives the party is looking to accomplish? Absolutely. I can sketch you the the broad strokes. And, and back in August, we we held a, a press conference to talk about what what we have been hearing for for actually several years, and that is that that Colorado families are are at sort of a breaking point with with how they can go about their daily lives, and and what we've heard is that that there are basically three big components of of where Colorado families are struggling so much. One is the cost of living here, and and of course we can't we can't change everything. We can't just you know, wave the magic wand and make it cheaper to live here. But what we can do is try to get government out of the places that it has inserted itself, especially in the last couple of years. You know, we had a, a bill that got pushed through last year. Speaker Garnett was one of the sponsors, and and I fought it really hard. That was that was um, Senate Bill 260, which was what was to be and was slated as this fix to transportation woes in the state, and it included a nine cent increase in the gas tax. And, and the challenge is that nine cents, you know, cents don't really sound like that big until they keep adding up. And so, you know, when you go to, to fill up your car to go to work, now it costs more to go to work. We have um, initiatives that the citizens have approved, and, and we have to figure out a way to put that in place, like family leave. And, and then we have the, the effects of COVID, and we have sick time requirements for employers. We have a dramatic increase to unemployment insurance. All of those are things that, that we can really effectively help with at the state. 
And so we want to we want to reach out and make sure that, that it's it's not as expensive to live in Colorado from the state fee side of the things that we really can take care of. The other thing is is to make our neighborhoods safer and to work on crime and crime prevention, but but truly to to go back, I, I talk about it a lot, and I don't think people have necessarily heard it in the last few years, which is the broken window theory of policing, which means that it's a combination of of not just prevention, but making sure that that when that window is broken, that that crime, that that you know, it could be vandalism, it could be theft, but it, that crime is treated just like an auto vehicle theft or an assault or something else. So that what we really do is make sure that all of our crimes are being enforced, all of all of our neighborhoods are being patrolled adequately. And so we really need to to work on doing that and working on co-responder models, which is which is I think the way to make sure that our police you know, really do the, the job that we're asking them to do, which is be those frontline responders um, when people are in times of crisis. And, yeah. and then the last is what we've really seen through COVID, and we've heard it for years, but it's come to this fine point in COVID, and that is that, that parents want to be a, an equal partner in the education of their kids. And that doesn't just mean um, parent-teacher conferences and other things. It really means down to not just the curriculum level in, in uh, school districts, but also having the whole compendium of educational opportunities open to their kids. I have pushed for years to say that, that we really need to focus on getting kids opportunities to participate in the vocational trades. Um, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, we have to find ways of making sure that parents know not only that that's a really, really good place for kids that don't see college as necessarily their future, but also that that it is a really great way to to fill those needed spaces in our society and are, are very good ways of creating long-term income and security. So those three big areas, that, that's where we've been focused. And back in August, we, we came out and said, this is what we are responding to. This is our commitment to the state of Colorado to move Colorado in a direction that, that really helps families uh, not just survive, but thrive and prosper. And, and, and I think that's let's get to... Right, right. Let, let's. We have a limited amount of time. Uh, Representative Garnett, I want to hear the Democratic agenda and, and how much of that links to the Republican agenda. There must be some places you guys can come together. Yeah, thanks so much, Nathan. And, you know, the uh, no one listening right now uh, wants to hear us bicker about who said what first at a press conference when. They want to know that we're going to be working hard to make uh, Colorado affordable and to make sure that they have a place that they can buy uh, a first-time home that they can buy, or that we're investing in uh, early childhood to make childcare more affordable. That's what they want to hear. I think what's um, surprising to me is that you hear uh, Representative McKean talking about how Republicans want to lead on saving people money, but there have been a number of examples from the last couple of sessions where Democrats have really taken the lead to reduce people's healthcare costs. For example, we ran a bill to uh, create a prescription affordability board to reduce people's prescription drug costs because we know that's one of the driving um, cost of living factors here in Colorado. And Representative McKean in particular fought that bill tooth and nail trying to defeat it at every turn. We ran a bill to reduce uh, people's healthcare costs to give them more choice in a very expensive marketplace and Representative McKean, again, 
was in the well fighting tooth and nail to prevent that and taking the side of insurance companies. And so I find it hard to believe that now, because uh, the pandemic has really hardened Coloradans in these three areas, that the Republicans are going to come in with ideas and get them through. They're holding a press conference tomorrow, and they haven't come and talked to us one time about what uh, we can work on together. Well, in a building where uh, we are all supposed to be working together, I find that to be disingenuous and not really a symbol of trying to get these things done. I think where you're going to see Democrats lead on is you're going to see us lead on uh, mental and behavioral health. You're going to see us lead on public safety. You're going to see us lead on education, but making sure we're investing in in public education. And and what I will leave uh, this with, and I think it's an important question for Representative McKean to answer is, how can we expect people to take the Republican agenda seriously if... um, uh, if we continue to hear these conspiracies and um, ideas around the election continuing to come out from people in their party who are elected in this caucus, Representative McKean, can you say right now today without a shred of hesitation that Biden won the election and that you'll condemn the big lie and push back on folks in your caucus like Ron Hanks who are spreading these conspiracy theories? Senator Representative McKean, we'll have you do a brief response and we have to move on. Well, that's just fine. And and my response is this. You know, I did fight things tooth and nail last year because we have seen Democrats who, who, who for my time in the House have been in the majority time and again say, we're going to solve this problem. And yet what they really do is limit the choice, limit the choice of Coloradans. So when I hear Speaker Garnett say, well, you know, they're disingenuous, I would throw that particular word right back because the challenge is that when you try to create a state-run prescription drug affordability board, what you're really doing is limiting the choice of Coloradans because what you're trying to do is insert the state into the market. And and I think that that's what everyday Coloradans see is that a government-driven solution is rarely something that works. In fact, it's the old joke, right? If, you know, show me a government program that, that has really, really worked well over the long term. And that's where when we come to the common sense solutions, what we're saying is don't just put fees off into the future. Actually trim those fees that come to the table of every single family. Because when we talk about what it costs to live here, and when we talk about what it, what it looks like for families to pay their bills, I will tell you this. I think there are families every day, right now today, there are families sitting down figuring out how many of the bills they can pay this month. And, right. and, and, and I grew and up in the McKean, 70s. I know that that's a, a struggle and inflation is going to really, really and, hurt. And Nathan, well, I, sure, I, I mean, I, Representative McKean, can you just answer the question about we, the, the big lie? I mean, I think it's important. Well, we for do Coloradans need to move on to because I think the, it is important that Coloradans know that. But we do have actual issues that people are, are, are dealing with. And I, and I do want to move to something that could mean money in people's pockets, which is Tabor. Uh, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. There is going to be a lot of money coming in that could be going back out to to people of Colorado. Refunds are expected to reach about $2 billion in each of the next three years. That's from the Denver Post, money in people's pockets. But I do know there's been talk that Democrats want to, in essence, repurpose that somehow. Is that an accurate way to portray this? Uh, Would you uh, say the Democrats want that to happen with people's money? Is that something you're planning to to push this session, uh, uh, Representative Garnett? Yeah, thanks, Nathan. And again, I hope that... uh... Representative McKean can come back to that question, because what I hear from Coloradans a lot is the concern about um, the division and the extreme partisanship that, that they're seeing. When it comes to 
uh, the Tabor refunds, there's a couple things. One, uh, we should be proud of how strong uh, our economy is right now. There was a lot of uh, challenges um, uh, coming out of that pandemic, and we uh, we really came together as Coloradans, and we uh, helped our economy bounce back. And that's why you're seeing so much revenue coming in, and that's why we're staring down uh, Tabor refunds that in the billions of dollars over the next couple of years. I do think it shows that Colorado is in desperate need of fiscal reform. What what Coloradans, uh, what I hear from Coloradans is that they want to make sure that the taxpayer dollars that they are paying are going towards their public schools, not to private schools like Representative McKean was saying, but to public schools and into the classroom and into teachers' pockets. They also want to make sure that their roads and bridges are are being fixed, uh, and and they don't care too much about the dollars uh, coming back in these refunds. However, we are in extraordinary times right now, and we need to make sure. Right that we are making, uh, we're helping Coloradans uh, bridge this gap to getting out of this pandemic and to, to, to better times. So what we need in the future is we need strong fiscal reform where we're coming in and we're fixing what's broken here in Colorado. If we uh, right. come in uh, this year and we start Rep- representative, uh, we... Uh, tinkering with uh, the refunds, that is a temporary fix and we, we need a long lasting reform in the future. Right. Unfortunately, we're going to have to end it there. We could talk for another hour about all of this, but we have to have to end it there. Thanks for both of you for joining us. Alec Garnett is a Democrat from Denver and the Speaker for the Colorado House of Representatives. Hugh McKean of Loveland is the Republican Minority Leader. They joined us to discuss the 2022 legislative session, which begins tomorrow at the state capitol. And on Thursday, the governor delivers the State of the State Address. CPR News will bring that to you beginning at 11 a.m. live. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Stay with us. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Colton Underwood shot to fame as ABC's The Bachelor. Every week, millions of people watched as 30 women vied for his attention and ultimately his hand in marriage. At the end of season 23, Underwood handed the final rose to Cassie Randolph, his future girlfriend, in front of adoring Bachelor fans. So I know we started this with 30 roses, um, and this is my final rose, and I'm looking forward to a lifetime of happiness with you. So, Cassandra and Randolph, will you accept this rose? <laughs> Well, outwardly, Underwood, a former NFL football player, looked truly in love. The whole thing was a painful exercise because he was secretly gay. Eventually, Colton came out publicly last April following a downward spiral involving allegations of stalking and a restraining order against him. In what some have said is a true reality star move, Colton has documented the aftermath of his time on The Bachelor in the Netflix series Coming Out Colton, much of which was filmed here in Colorado, where many of his friends and family live. I spoke with him early last month. Colton, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me on. Coming Out Colton has been out for a while now, uh, but were you nervous uh, for the lead up to the release of this series on Netflix because it is so personal to you? Uh, I don't know if nervous, I mean, nervous might have been one of the emotions I was feeling. Um, I was anxious. I, you know, I was excited. I was scared. 
Uh, I mean, honestly, it's it's been obviously a year in the making. So a lot of buildup and a lot of different emotions going through sort of my head for the launch of it. Yeah. I mean, the premise of the series is essentially it's your coming out story. I mean, you came out publicly in April on Good Morning America, but as you say, this series goes deeper exploring your actual coming out months earlier to friends, your family, your church. Walk us through this decision to film these intimate moments. I mean, what was it like being filmed where sharing your truth with people who were frankly, they were they were surprised? Yeah, I mean, obviously the people in my life, I I sort of put them in a, in a weird position having cameras yeah. up for it all. But, you know, if they knew what I went through the last two years with cameras um, around, they sort of knew what they were getting themselves into. But for me, I mean, look, it wasn't an easy decision to just like all of a sudden have a camera crew around. You know, there are some things that went on behind the scenes that led to the decision for me to, you know, just basically say, you know, let's film it. Um, and for me, I, I really enjoyed it because the camera sort of held me accountable, you know, knowing that I was going to go fishing with my dad. And that was my moment to tell him sort of forced me to have a conversation that I put off for 28, 29 years. So like you couldn't run away um, from it because the cameras you can't are rolling, run away. Right? Yeah, you sort of have, you know, you sort of have to have that conversation in that in that moment. Um, but I also say this, like the production company and, and Netflix specifically really, you know, reminded me and reminded everybody working on the project that it's human first and whatever, you know, felt right to me was sort of what we did. And it's just honestly one of the most raw and real projects that I think I've ever seen or obviously been involved in. You're talking, you know, as a project, but this is your life. You're essentially coming out to people who, who love you, who care about you. What was it like for them when they heard these these words? You know, I'm gay or I'm coming out. Well, I mean, it took me even a while. If you notice, in the first couple times that I came out, like I, I still was sort of struggling to say the words "I'm gay." Um, you know, it was it was more like, I guess this is me coming out, or I've been struggling with my sexuality. Um, and I think that they could sort of just sense how uncomfortable I was with it and how new and sort of shy I was around the subject matter. So, um, yeah, you know, it's, it is my life. I think sometimes people forget that too. Um, you know, including myself at times, you know, how reality TV is, is very real for, you know, whether people want to believe that or not, but it, it was an unbelievable experience and obviously something that I'm still going through. I mean, I'm, I'm still coming out to this day. I'm still learning new things, not only about myself, but about the community. Um, and about everybody that's in it. Yeah. You you equate much of your struggle being in the closet to this toxic masculinity and homophobia of football and sports. You were in the NFL for a time and played football for nearly all of your life. And you had backed your high school in this series to explore that struggle, uh, being in the locker room when you were younger, fully knowing you're gay and hearing the slurs and the homophobic jokes. I remember we had like one gay kid in the school. And like when you had a bad play, or you did, it was always when you did something wrong, they would call you by his name. And I just remember like that at the time, it's so high schoolish, but like that at the time was the ultimate diss, is to be called like that guy's name. Which is horrible. That's what keeps people in the closet is because a lot of the toxic parts were allowed and deemed part of the culture. How do you square that atmosphere with the strong bond that you felt for your high school coach? I mean, you said in some ways on the same level with your father was what you felt for your coach, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, I think for me, you know, if if 
if there would have been a time or moment in place in high school where, you know, the coaching staff or the teachers or just, you know, the leaders in our town and in our community would have stepped up and sort of nipped that in the bud, it would have provided a little bit of a safer atmosphere for me. I don't know if I would have exactly came out point blank, but, you know, when you take the reverse in and all of a sudden there are homophobic slurs all over the place, not only in the football and in the locker room, but in classrooms and in, in our town in general, it made it really intimidating and really hard and honestly made me really just want to do everything in my power to not be gay. And that town and, you know, the teachers and everybody in it, you know, they still have a long ways to go. And this is an opportunity for them to hear from one of their own, um, you know, about what they went through when they were there. What are some of the deeper feelings you have reconciling your past while confronting the fact that this stuff happened in a locker room, that there were homophobic slurs, that there were things that, you know, that drove you deeper into the closet. Give me a little bit of perspective on how that's still playing out in your life. Well, I mean, first, I just have to take like my own responsibility and my own accountability and my actions. I mean, whether I didn't speak up in a locker room when I was a captain or whether I contributed to any type of bullying when I was in a locker room because I felt pressure and wanted to fit in and didn't want to really stand out or cause waves because I was scared it would cause questions towards me. So I guess, you know, that's where it starts. And then now for me, it's, you know, I have to have some tough conversations with people who affected me in my past, because if I don't do that, I feel like not a lot's going to change. And as hard as it is for me to sort of have these conversations and, and call people out, I have to do it for the generations behind me. And and even call yourself out, right? You know, like totally. you said, you were you you were the one maybe egging people on to keep yourself your secret safe, right? Exactly. I mean, look, I just I wanted to do anything in my power to be straight. I wanted to do anything in my power to fit in. And unfortunately at sometimes, you know, I, you know, leaned in or I was sat there and let people make those comments and, you know, that's not okay either. And you also meet in this series three former gay NFL football players. You met with Michael Sam, David Cope, Esra Tuaolo. I mean, these are names that, that people may know, but may also may not know. David Cope was the first player to come out after he retired. He played in the league from 1964 to 1972. Esra came out after he was playing too, and he played in the 90s, and he even made it to the Super Bowl with the Atlanta Falcons. And then Michael Sam, who is in the same draft class as I was, was the first openly gay football player to be drafted. Why was it so important for you to meet these players? Yeah, I think just the generational um, sort of gaps for all of us. I mean, obviously, Michael Sam was my draft class. But, uh, you know, hearing Asera and then hearing David Cope and what they went through really put a lot of things in perspective for me. Um, but at the same time, the root of it, not a lot has changed in, in that in that sport. I mean, it's this year, 2021, that we finally have the first out gay player and um, Carl Nassab with the Raiders. Right. And I just, you know, I just thought that that conversation after after leaving that helped me so much. It really did, you know, sort of put things in perspective of like, OK, it's not just me. I'm not just alone in these feelings. And, um, you know, obviously after the release, so many athletes and so many people have reached out to me, you know, sharing that they feel the same way. And you also have a strong relationship uh, with Shelby Harris, too, right? He's a defensive end for the Denver Broncos. Was it important to have his approval, especially since he is in the NFL currently? Oh, totally. I mean, look, that's a teammate of mine from college and a teammate of mine, you know, when I was with the Raiders and um, someone who I went to war with every single Saturday and, and on some Sundays, too. 
So of, of course, like talking to him and hearing, you know, his response and his love, you know, for me and how it hasn't changed meant the world. Um, I mean, that's my teammate and someone who is still a very close friend of mine. And he's an incredible human being, obviously an incredible player for the Denver Broncos. Um, but his heart obviously shines through in, in our combo. But you know, you're my dog. You're always gonna be my guy, you know? Yeah. That, that doesn't change anything. I'm happy you're finally happy. Like, I'm happy you can finally be yourself. That's really yeah. all that really matters, you know? Yep. Can, can you sleep at night with a smile on your face? Yeah. That's all that matters, then, man. Tell us about being gay and, and living in your Christian faith. You know, when I first was sort of coming out to myself and talking through it in therapy, I was really nervous and I was really anxious to sort of alienate two communities that, quite frankly, just don't understand at times each other. Um, and that's the gay community and the Christian community. So I, you know, was in a position where I was like, I want to be accepted by both. And I mean, obviously now, since I've continued to go through it all, you know, I've learned, you know, thing, new things about both communities. Um, I am still a Christian man and I obviously am gay. So, you know, that answers the questions that I was sort of seeking, you know, in the series and, and at that time of my life, you know, is, can I be a gay Christian? And the answer is yes. And, um, my relationship with God right now and my relationship with my faith is really strong. In the show, you have a difficult conversation with your pastor and you end up leaving his church, but you're also introduced to the Metropolitan Community Church of Denver. And there you meet with a number of gay church members and discuss being gay and Christian. And it's discussion led by the church's pastor, Ben Mann. Take a listen. The organization of the MCC was started over 50 years ago by a group of gay men. And if you'll notice our backdrop, this beautiful stained glass window that you see, the body of Christ. He has different skin tones and different body sizes. And the reason for that is that we can come together, that we can be different, that we can ask unusual questions. And everyone in this room, I think, is involved in some kind of justice work. You know, I just want you to hear that you are loved and you are accepted fully, regardless of who you are, how you are, and what you want. I feel like at the beginning of this week, I was asked to leave part of myself behind to stay close to God. So this is definitely a good thing for me to see and experience. That was incredible for me to hear and see and for them to even push me and be like, you know, don't, you're not going to lose your faith. Like we, you know, it's not a sin to be gay. We have your back and we're going to explore this with you. Now, we have to talk about some of the backlash that this series has seen, including from fans of The Bachelor who see this as a way to just cover up the issues surrounding your past relationship with Cassie Randolph. In 2020, she filed a restraining order against you. I mean, what do you say to that? Is this series and your public coming out a way to gloss over that part of your past? I mean, a restraining order against someone isn't given lightly. It's a big deal. I mean, it's it's definitely a big mistake you made, right? Yeah, I mean, it, and to answer your question very bluntly, no, this was not to gloss over anything of my past. If anything, it was for me to take ownership and accountability for you know the things I did. Um, obviously, it's this. My past has a lot of different layers to it, and especially when speaking to the restraining order and everything that went in there. But I thought it was you know it was important for me to acknowledge sort of, hey, this is what got me to this place in the first in the first place. This is how I ended up being, you know, mentally very unhealthy. Um, so 
that's, I guess, why I felt it was important for me to talk through it on a series and not just post on social media or not just do this. And look, I listened and I, and I heard the backlash and, you know, some of the words and some of the labels attached to me, I mean, quite frankly, aren't true, but you know, it is what it is. I mean, that's the public and that's what, you know, they sort of saw play out, even though, you know, I lived it and I went through it, you know, now I'm at a point where I'm trying to own that. I'm trying to hold myself accountable and say, Hey, I'm becoming a better person. I've learned from that. That's not going to happen again. And I have people in my life that are going to hold me accountable and help me out. Yeah. I mean, but on the other side of, of the negative press, uh, I read your Instagram feed and I, I see it is filled with people who are praising the show, saying it helped them as they were coming out or, or, or they may have had a similar experience as you in sports, being gay. I've read thousands and thousands of messages. I've heard from a lot of different people in my life that have been going through something similar and I didn't even know. So it's been amazing to hear that support, have that support. It's been amazing to hear those stories too. You say in the series that you returned to Colorado after everything happened between you and your ex-girlfriend and, and, and really began to rebuild your life here. Will you always have a place in your heart for Colorado? I mean, do you plan to stay here or, or are you moving on and, and moving to LA or, or some other place? Oh, Colorado has a huge part of my life. Uh, has a huge part of my heart. Um, I mean, I'm a big snowboarder. I love hiking. I love being outdoors with my dogs. So, um, you know, currently I'm actually looking for property up in the mountains in the conifer area. So um, I hope that I can, you know, build my dream house and retire and live my best life out in Colorado for the rest of my life. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Colton Underwood joined me from L.A. in early December. His show Coming Out Colton is streaming now on Netflix. Much of it was filmed here in Colorado. Following our chat, online reports criticized Underwood and his seeming white privilege. Voices concerned he'd been given a show and a platform while others don't have that opportunity. In an interview he gave on a podcast after our talk, Colton addressed those concerns. I see the criticism. I know that people are upset that I'm, I have white privilege and I got a series after coming out. I couldn't imagine what it's like to be someone from an underprivileged area to have to come out and yeah. not only risk losing their football, but risk losing a house and food and money. Those are the real things. Are we to a point in society where we can pick and choose and compare traumas? I don't think we are no, yet. No. And that, that was never my goal too. And I never wanted to compare my trauma to anybody else. I just wanted to get my side out there and my story out there to say, Hey, this is what I've been through. And if people, especially from bachelor nation will tune in and yep. listen to me, then I feel like I've done my part in starting the conversation. And there's so much more I can do. Colton Underwood speaking on the Call Me Daddy podcast. If you're having issues coming out or just need some help, the TrevorProject.org has information and support for LGBTQ plus young people. Up next, remembering an icon of Colorado's art scene. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Frasier, elevation 8,600 feet, gets below freezing on more than 300 nights a year. It's recorded a freeze for every single date of the year, and its growing season lasts just a week, thanks to cold air that gets trapped in the bowl-shaped valley where it sits. In 1956, Frasier called itself the Icebox of the Nation, eight years after International Falls, Minnesota adopted the title because there was money in it as a marketing tool. 
Meteorologists would say neither place deserves the slogan, but the rivalry persisted until International Falls paid Fraser $2,000 to drop its claim. International Falls got the trademark, then forgot to renew it. Fraser leaped on the opportunity, but was countersued. And though it ultimately lost the legal battle to be the icebox of the nation, it could compete with Alamosa and Gunnison to be the icebox of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Cobalt and Company. He's been called Colorado's most important artist. Clark Rickert was an abstract expressionist whose colorful paintings of complex geometric shapes and intricate patterns were highly regarded around the world. Rickert died at age 80 in the final days of 2021. Here to remember Clark is longtime art critic Mary Volse Chandler, formerly of the Rocky Mountain News. She's also co-author of a book that featured Rickert called Colorado Abstract, Paintings and Sculpture. Mary, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Nathan. So how would you describe his work? His paintings were always very large, and you had to really look at it and make sense of it. And if Clark was not there, um, you just had to figure out the, um, the mathematical situation. I understand geometry. I understand algebra. But I a lot of what um, Clark did, I had no idea what he was doing. But his paintings were so amazing. This concept of um, tiling and if you look at any of his paintings, you would see that he was he would do this over and over again. Right. Like you talk about the tiling and you talk about the fact that it's intricate shapes that just go on and on and on and there's depth to them and they're um, intricately woven and they're multicolored. Our former arts reporter, Stephanie Wolf profiled Clark in 2019, and she noted that during their 30-minute conversation, much of the time, he dove into the many theories guiding his artwork, and she created this montage. Listen to this. Plato's allegory of the cave, people are watching shadows on the wall, and Plato was suggesting that the real reality is casting those shadows. You know, more contemporary physics, there's now um, string theory which postulates that so it's through the trikotahedron that I started getting interested in higher dimensions. The neocotahedron is regarded... Yes, I learned a lot from him, even though I had no concept of some of these things. If you didn't even understand what he was doing, they were beautiful, and you could just get wrapped up in what he was saying and what he was doing. So for someone like me... <laughs> It was just, it was just so, it was so important to me to try to learn what he was doing. And you're an art critic, so you are very uh, knowledgeable about painting and things like this. And for you to say, I don't know what what it is that (laughs) makes it so beautiful, but it was still beautiful. Yes, it was. And when you would sit there with Clark and walk around a gallery, usually at Rule. Um, and that's the Rule Gallery in Denver, right? In Denver. And I learned so much from him, even though I wasn't quite sure what he was doing. Um, but Clark was always so good with his students. 
and he never wanted them to um, do what he was doing. What do you mean by that, uh, not do what he was doing? Um, there were times when he would ask me to come in and look at what his um, students were doing. And he never pushed them to do what he wanted to do. I mean, he was just a great teacher. And he taught for many years at the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. Uh, I'm curious, when you were there with him, did did his students like him? Did you hear that overall? They really, I'm not going to say they loved him, but he was so good with them. He never wanted to, he never wanted any of his, any of his students to do exactly what he was doing. Now, that's a really important thing because there are other teachers who wanted their students to do the same thing that they were doing, and Clark never did that. Mary, I I stumbled on a YouTube video of what appears to be Clark's students, and they're doing impressions of him. Do you think that this art is cheese? Or do you think that this is art about cheese? Have you ever heard of Takashi Murakami? Do you know who Takashi Murakami is? Okay, let me know when you're ready. It's gonna be short. Okay. Life, life, you're so slife. That's it, end. And of course, that last voice was Clark himself. Uh, I can see the playfulness he had, and I can see the the joy that his students had uh, for him. Mary, when you heard that Clark had passed, um, were there any memories that popped into your head right away upon hearing that he had he had died? I I for some reason. When I heard that that Clark had passed, I I thought he would go on forever. And because he was always painting and he, I guess it was in maybe July and August, I went to Rule to see um, some paintings from Margaret Newman and um, Clark had some um, pieces upstairs and they were just wonderful. And when I heard that Clark had passed, I just thought this, this can't be happening. It just can't be happening. Knowing that his students still cared for him and how much he gave them in terms of the paintings they did. Clark also created what many call the first artist commune, which was in Southern Colorado, Drop City, (laughs) Can you describe that for us, for someone who may not know what that is? Okay. So there were several, maybe it was five or six people down near Trinidad. And um, people back in the 60s thought that they were doing dropping acid, you know, that kind of stuff. But that's not what Drop City was. They were dropping things from these towers to see what would happen when it landed on the ground. I mean, I wish I could have been there back then. And were they calling that art or something or more of a science experiment? That's so interesting. It was a science experience and experiment. And I think when I read about what he had done 
and his um, his friends had done. I, I wish I could have been there. Because it was where people could express their art and do experimenting mm-hmm. and things like that. But of course, press accounts at the time they called mm-hmm. it, quote, rife with drugs, alcohol, and yeah. hippies. But, but that wasn't a fair picture. And they were not hippies at all. I mean, maybe they were, but, you know, they were experimenting on with everything. And Clark continued this. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of Clark outside of Colorado and, and why his work has resonated for the art community, if, if you know that? Because I know that his artwork is on display right now at a gallery in Marfa, Texas, which is very well known in the art community. Well, I have not been at Marfa, but when Rule began to um, deal with Marfa, people would be transfixed, re- trying to reading these paintings. Um, and I know he had other places that he uh, had paintings elsewhere. But the Marfa thing was just a last blast. But apparently there's going to be another one in Denver um, just to remind people what Clark was doing. Mary, I really appreciate you sharing your memories with us today. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for asking me. Art critic and reporter Mary Voles Chandler, former uh, formerly of the Rocky Mountain News. She's also the co-author of Colorado Abstract, Paintings and Sculpture. We remembered artist Clark Rickert, who died Christmas Eve day. His work was most recently on display at a gallery in the art epicenter of Marfa, Texas. There's also a floor dedicated to him at the Art Hotel in Denver. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us and to the team of audio artists who make it possible. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters or send us an email, coloradomatters at cpr.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.